please rise for the reading of the word of the Lord. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have, because you do not ask. You do not ask and do not receive, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Jenna. So for the past few weeks, we've been going through the book of James, and I hope that you have been following along with us, and I've encouraged you to read uh, along with us. And if you remember from our first week, we were, uh, found out that James was written as a letter to the scattered churches uh, in the area, and they would read this letter all in one sitting. Uh, and so I've encouraged you, if you can, throughout the week to read the entire letter of James. It'll only take you about 10 minutes or so. And we've been reading through it each week during the section of Scripture that we've been going through. And I've had a number of you tell me that you've just loved this series. Someone came up to me last Sunday and said, you know, this is so applicable to my life. I feel like James is speaking directly to me. And then someone else said, you know, I think we should do this series every year. And I don't know if we're going to do that or not, but it is amazing that this word, no matter how many times you've read the letter of James, uh, every time I read it, I get something new. And every time I open up the word, and especially here in the book of James, uh, God is speaking directly to something that's going on in my life. 
And uh, so we've seen some of that stuff over the past few weeks. And so I encourage you, continue to read if you have been. We're, we're nearing the home stretch towards the end. Uh, but I want to do have a little fun this morning and see how many of us have actually been reading and soaking in this word. And so we're going to play a game called Which James Said It? So which James said it? We're going to see here. Crisis is the rallying cry of the tyrant. Was it A, James Madison, B, James Bond, C, James Earl Jones, or D, the book of James? Anybody know? Call it out. Madison. Madison. Uh, What do we say here? That is correct. Yes, James Madison. $1,000. Okay. (laughs) Next one. You can't teach others if you are living the same way. That sounds like it could be from the Bible. Is it A, James Joyce, B, James Brown, C, the book of James, or D, the great philosopher LeBron James? Anybody know? Let's see what the survey says. James Brown actually said that. I know. Shocking, isn't it? One of the very few quotes we probably could have put from James Brown up there. Okay. Next one, a tiny spark can set a great forest on fire. Was that A, James Monroe, B, James Dean, C, the book of James, or D, James Earl Jones? Anybody know? All right, somebody's going to pay attention. C, the book of James. All right, for $10 million, only the gentle are ever really strong. That sounds like it could be from the Bible. Was that A, James Franco, B, the book of James, C, James Joyce, or D, James Dean? Anybody know? Survey says, James Dean. I know, only the gentle are ever really strong. All right. And finally, for all of the money available to you this morning, which is nothing, winter, spring, summer, or fall, all you have to do is call and I'll be there. Anybody know? Yeah, be James Taylor. All right. Congratulations, you're all winners in my book. But I hope that you have been following and reading along with us and letting this word soak in. Uh, These these phrases that we read in James, the verses that we read, this letter to us, it just pierces at our heart and tells us what's important, the things that we're going through every day that we're facing, how we can have, as our subtitle says, a faith that works. And over the past few weeks, uh, we've been seeing some important truths, and we're going to just look at some of those in a minute. But we've learned in this letter that, if you remember, was written by the half-brother of Jesus, some very practical approaches to what living a disciple, a life of a disciple, is all about. And if you remember the definition we have a couple weeks ago that we talked about in our called series on a disciple, is a disciple is something, someone who's following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and is committed to the mission of Jesus. And so much of what James is talking about is that second part, being changed by Jesus. What does it mean to live a life that gives Jesus honor and glory? James often draws from the teaching of his brother Jesus, primarily the Sermon on the Mount. So a lot of what he talks about sounds familiar to us, but he also takes wisdom right out of the book of Proverbs. And James doesn't spend a lot of time talking about the wise, although we are going to see that today. But he does talk to us about how we can live a life, the things that we can do. What does it look like to live as a disciple? And he's laid out some some building blocks for us that we've gone through over the past few weeks. We saw in the first week that the difficulties that we face in life, we need to look at them as Christ followers differently. Remember, we're supposed to trust him in our trials and turn to him in our temptations. We saw that at the beginning of chapter 1. 
Towards the end of chapter one, we, need to, we saw that we, when we're faced with those trials and those temptations, we need to slow down. Quick, slow, slow, if you remember that. We need to listen to God and to each other. We need to take a look in the mirror, if you remember that analogy that he gives us of a mirror. The living word of God and put our lives in focus in that mirror and say, do I reflect who Jesus is? We saw in chapter two that we need to treat everyone with dignity and respect. We saw that dead faith doesn't work, that just saying it isn't enough, just having intellectual belief isn't enough, and that the way we treat each other matters. Remember the phrase, favoritism is foreign to faith. And then last week we saw the words that we use should be a source of life. They can be used to either build each other up or burn things down. And these are all the works that demonstrate who we are as a disciple of Jesus. They're all markers of living the Christian life. They're not tasks to complete. And they're not even really just things to do. They're who we're supposed to be. And I hope that when you look at James, you don't just see a checklist of things you're to do. But we see how our life is supposed to be oriented in light of who Jesus is. We've seen that James isn't a list of do's or don'ts, but it's telling us how to be. And as we near the end of our journey with Jesus, he, or with James, he now turns a corner. James has been giving us these real-life examples of how to live as a Christ follower, but here in chapter 3, he ties it all together in an amazing way. If you remember last week, James told us the power of our words that, once again, can be used for good or for evil. And we can look at all these things that James has laid out, and we can do them, but if we're not doing them with the right motivations... They become just tasks to complete. And James is going to tell us, really piggybacking off of what we saw last week, why we struggle so much with our tongue. Remember, last week's message was all about the power of our words. And he talked a lot about what our words can do, but he didn't tell us why we often struggle with our tongue. But we're going to find that out this morning as we look at James chapter 3, the passage we just read. So we're going to look at James chapter 3, starting in verse 13. It says, If you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, demonic, he says. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. This passage here in James ties right back to what we talked about last week. The why of why we struggle with our words. He says we're struggling with it because of selfish ambition. What is selfish ambition? And most of us think of ambition as a good thing, right? We want to be ambitious in life. We expect ambition in our kids. Our, as employers, we want our employees to be ambitious. We celebrate it in athletes and celebrities. Ambitions is what drives us towards success. Ambition can be a good thing. An actual definition of ambition is a strong desire to do or achieve something, typically requiring determination and hard work. No, I don't know about you, but that sounds like a good thing. But what does ambition look like that is selfish? That's what James is telling us is the heart of our struggle with our words. 
Selfish ambition is a strong desire to do or achieve something to elevate yourself or to fill a void. Selfish ambition is doing something to elevate yourself or to fill a void in your heart. It's easy for us to read this passage and think, this can't be talking about me. Because he uses some pretty harsh language to say what happens to those who struggle with selfish ambition. He said that they're earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. That's not how I like to describe myself. Earthly, unspiritual, demonic. So what does it mean to have selfish ambition? A few years ago, I came face to face with what it feels like and what it looks like in my own life to struggle with selfish ambition. I mean, for my whole life, I've, I've loved teaching and preaching God's word. And about five years ago, at the church I was at in Wisconsin, after a tragedy with our senior pastor, I was asked to step into teaching. And so for a year, I spent time teaching, serving as a teaching pastor at the church. And as the church began to heal and different things began to happen, uh, it was obvious we were growing and we were going to have that position available as a teaching pastor. And I thought, well, this is great. I'm already doing this job. I love doing this job. I'm getting good feedback from this. I love teaching God's word. And so I applied for the job. And guess what? I didn't get it. I had been doing that job and serving that church, <clears throat> doing that, but yet God did not see fit to give me that job. And there were some things that were shared of why I wasn't the greatest fit for that. And you know what? They stung. They hurt. But something happened. The very next week, I got a job offer for senior pastor at a church just down the road. Now, that seems like a God thing, doesn't it? And I got excited about that. My wife and I, we prayed about this opportunity. And something just wasn't sitting right with me. And I happened to be, as I often am, reading through the book of James. And I came across this passage that we're reading this morning about selfish ambition. And it got me right between the eyes. Because although it was good that I wanted to teach the word, the reality was that the reason that I wanted that job was because I hadn't gotten the other one. Because there was some selfish ambition involved in that. It wasn't wrong to want to teach the Word of God, but my motivation wasn't completely pure. And so I had to wrestle with that. And we decided not to take that job. Now, I I firmly believe that had I accepted that position, that God would have used it for His glory and good things would have happened. But things weren't right within my heart in that moment because I was struggling with selfish ambition. See, you can do the right things for the wrong reasons. We've talked about that before. But my decision, if I had made that decision for either one of those jobs, really, they were fueled by my insecurities and my need to be satisfied, to prove myself, especially after I didn't get the job that I wanted. Selfish ambition. Well, I've been learning to recognize selfish ambition in my own life. And a pastor and author, Carrie Newhoff, has a helpful list of markers of what living with selfish ambition might look like. And so we're going to go through these really quick. There's quite a few of them, but I want to see if you identify with any of these. Twelve things that are true if you're motivated by selfish ambition. 
Your personal sense of worth goes up and down with the opportunities ahead of you. Failure is terrifying. You think that you're the deal. You use people to get where you want to go. You take the credit. You strive for breath of exposure. In other words, you want to be the center of everything that's going on. You want people to see what you're doing. You're always thinking about the next thing. Again, you can have ambition. Some of that is ambition. But selfish ambition is that no matter what you're doing, you're always thinking of the next thing. You're always comparing yourselves to others. Do you find it hard to say no to any opportunity? Do you feel entitled to any success that comes your way? Do you need to win? Is your need to win greater than your need to love the people around you? And are you always insecure? Do you see yourself in any of these lists? I know that I do. And if you're willing, I want to encourage you, ask your spouse or a family member or a coworker. Often it's difficult to see selfish ambition in our own lives. One of the great stories in the Bible that remind me of selfish ambition is the story of Joseph. This was a guy who was doing the right things, but often for the wrong reasons. If you know the story of Joseph, he was blessed with this coat of many colors, or if you're a, a musical theater friend, the Technicolor dream coat. And he flaunted it. He was blessed beyond measure. He was the favorite of his father. But he had selfish ambition, the way he handled that with his brothers. And if you know the story, you know it didn't go well. And Joseph went on this journey to really sift out in his life the ambition that was in his heart. And he ended up being the, top, the second in command in Egypt. And by that time, he was motivated by the right things. See, we can often do the right things for the wrong reasons. And James wants us to understand it's not just about doing the right things. It's about being right inside. So how do we know that we're doing the right things for the right reasons and not being driven by selfish ambition? James actually gives us the remedy for selfish ambition. Verse 17, he says, But the wisdom from above is first of all pure, is also peace-loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. If you look at that list there, we're going to go through it in just a minute, but so much of that lines up with things we've already looked at in James. Being peace-loving, pure, gentle, willing to yield full of mercy and good deeds, not showing favoritism. And James tells us that the remedy for selfish ambition, how do you deal with selfish ambition in your life? It's to have godly wisdom. Godly wisdom. And we've talked about this before. Wisdom isn't the same thing as knowledge. We've met people who are smart but not wise. Sometimes we're smart but not wise. We know a lot, but wisdom is more than just knowing. 1 Corinthians 8.1 tells us, Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If you remember this year, we're basing all of our teaching in a theme verse that really helps us to understand what godly wisdom is. 
from Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. For this reason, since the day you've heard it, we've not stopped praying for you and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him as you bear fruit in every good work and as you grow in the knowledge of God. Godly wisdom, not just head knowledge, but a condition of our heart. Constable, in his commentary on this, defines godly wisdom as the ability to see life from God's perspective, from God's point of view. What does a life of godly wisdom look like? How do we live a life that demonstrates all that we're learning here in the book of James? We live a life of godly wisdom. So James walks us through what God's view of life is, what it means to have God's view of life, to have godly wisdom. He says, first of all, it's pure. He tells us living a life of godly wisdom starts with purity, not just in our actions, but in our motives, in our heart. Impurity allows us to enter into God's presence. James echoes the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. They will experience God because of the purity, the motivations of their heart. This is more than just outwardly doing the right things, but inwardly living a life that's free of selfish ambition. It's pure. He says it's peace-loving. Now, this doesn't mean it's free of conflict. It's a stance. It's a posture. Are you living in right relationships between your brothers and sisters and between God? See, we will have conflict in life. We know that. But how do you deal with the conflict that you have in your life? Are you looking for common ground? Are you peace-loving? Or do you just like to fight? Are you looking for common ground? He goes on, he says that people who experience godly wisdom are gentle, or your, your passage might say considerate. They're willing to yield to others or submissive. Here's what that means. It doesn't mean that you get walked over, that you allow anything bad to happen to you, that you just don't care about that. But being willing to yield to others means do you always have to win? When you're faced with an argument with your spouse or your neighbor or a coworker, or even here at church, do you always have to win? Are you willing to yield to others? He says, those who experience godly wisdom are full of mercy, full of good deeds, that they don't show favoritism, and that they're always sincere. In other words, do they walk their talk? Those who don't are called hypocrites, Right? We're warned time and time again in the Bible about being hypocrites, about saying one thing but doing the other. Are you always sincere in what you do? Does that list sound like you? I want that list to reflect my life. I want that godly wisdom to be what people use to describe Stephen, not that first list from Carrie Newoff, but that list of godly wisdom. So when I begin to become aware of selfish ambition in my life, I want to hold my life, my actions, my decisions, and ultimately my motivations in front of that mirror that we talked about a few weeks ago. What do I see when I look in the mirror? See, these characteristics are the characteristics of living a life of godly wisdom. And we see what 
James summarizes what living this life of godly wisdom produces, what our life will look like in verse 18. He says, and those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. See, nothing can ever grow in an atmosphere where there's division. Not in a relationship, not in a marriage, not in a church. And this echoes what James shared with us in chapter 1. In verse 20, he said, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. But here he tells us what does produce the righteousness of God. Godly wisdom. Living a life of gentleness and peace. Willing to yield to others. Mercy. See that list up on the screen again. Pure, peace-loving, gentle, willing to yield to others, full of mercy, good deeds, doesn't show favoritism, sincere. Are you living out of godly wisdom in your conversations with your spouse? Would this list be reflective of the way that you interact with people online? Maybe when you see some political posts or in church meetings, disagreements and disputes. In those, are you motivated by selfish ambition to prove that you're right? Even when you are right, even when you are right, are you motivated to prove you're right? Even when you're speaking truth or are you expressing godly wisdom? Or is your, your conversations, your rightness being driven by selfish ambition? So if godly wisdom is the key to a faith that works, how do we get it? Again, it's not something we do. It's a way to be. How do we get godly wisdom? We read this in chapter 4, verse 8 through 10. It says, Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. We get godly wisdom by being close to God. Godly wisdom is found in humbling ourselves and drawing close to him. Submitting yourself to God in a right relationship with him. That's it. Not a bunch of checklists or things that you have to change. You need to get close to God. Proverbs 3 tells us, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. I encourage you this week to look at the rest of, of Proverbs chapter 3. It's a great companion piece to this passage in James that talks all about what it means to live a life of wisdom, to not rely on your ways, but to draw close to God and be filled with godly wisdom. Because godly wisdom is found in leaning into Jesus, drawing close to him. In the midst of these practical examples of what living a godly life looks like, we see it's drawing near to God. And as we draw near to God, we see ourselves more clearly in that mirror. We see how much, even in our rightness, even in our truth, that we often live a life of selfish ambition, a life of division. He goes on, he says, a life of war or murder. But the remedy for this life is not just doing good works. 
it's more of him and less of me. See, in the Gospel of John, we read the encounter of John the Baptist with some of his disciples. And they were doing God's work. They were doing the right things. But they were concerned because Jesus was baptizing more people than John was. And they were wrestling with selfish ambition. And here's John's response to them. John chapter 3, verse 29. He said, It is the bridegroom who marries the bride. And the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. I love that analogy of the bridegroom and the bride. And the bridegroom's friends are, they're not jealous. They're not filled with selfish ambition. They're so glad that that couple is getting married. Less of me, more of God. You express it this way. I've got to become smaller so he can become greater. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. See, as we draw near to God, as we sit with him, he does the work of revealing our hidden motives. The more time we spend in his presence, in worship, the more we see our need for a savior. And then our life begins to reflect who Jesus is more and more. Now, James goes on in chapter four and he illustrates how dangerous it is to live in division. And he uses some pretty harsh language. He said, the way we treat each other in disputes For us, they might be online or in person around your dinner table. He said, it's not just disagreements, it's a war. It's murder. We don't believe that the people in the church, they were actually killing each other. I guess it's possible, but not likely. He's probably alluding to Jesus' teaching where he says that when you have anger against your brother or sister, it's like you're murdering them. Remember, James isn't talking to people out in the world. He's talking to the church with all of this the selfish ambition. He says, when you have conflicts among you, it's like murder. And then he goes on in James chapter four, verse four and five, he says, you adulterous people. Now this is, this is interesting because so far James is always referring to us as brothers and sisters. When he's talking here, he says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason he is jeal- that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? James says that living your life apart from godly wisdom is adultery. Now, if you're following along in your Bible, you may see a little notation on that verse, a little marking there, and it says, See Hosea chapter 3. And if you remember this past summer, we began our Summer in the Minor series, going through the minor prophets, and we started with the prophet Hosea. And God told the prophet Hosea to marry a prostitute named Gomer. And Gomer, we were told, was going to cheat on Hosea. Hosea knew this going into it. She was going to commit adultery time and time again. But Hosea, as a foreshadowing of God's grace, would take her back. And James says, living your life apart from godly wisdom is adultery. Not adultery in the physical sense, but living a life of earthly wisdom, selfish ambition, living as he calls a friend of the world, is in essence adultery. We're literally cheating on God. 
we're cheating on God. And James says he jealously longs for the spirit that he's caused to dwell in us. Not a worldly jealousy. James started this passage by saying, don't have jealousy and selfish ambition. God has a different kind of jealousy. See, when we have jealousy and selfish ambition is when we want something that belongs to someone else. For whatever those reasons might be that we already looked at. But God's jealousy is so different because we belong to him. He's purchased us with the blood of Jesus. We're already his, and he longs for us. He jealously longs for the spirit that he's put within us. It's his. He wants us to draw close to him. His spirit lives in us. And James wants us to understand how incredibly dangerous and destructive it is to live with selfish ambition. See, James shows us we have a different reaction to struggles and persecution. There were listeners who seek to hear what others are saying and react to them in love, not anger. That we treat people with grace and dignity. That the words that we speak will build up and not burn down. Do we want to have a right relationship with God? He says, draw near to me. How do we do that? It's not nearly as complicated as we might make it out to be. It says, wash your hands and purify your hearts. But here's the important part. You can't do that. You can't clean yourself. You can't purify your heart. You can't rid yourself of selfish ambition. Only God can do those works. Our job in that is just to draw near to him. Aaron reminded us of that in our communion time this morning. He just wants to talk. He just wants us to come closer to him. See, we often look at our life, it's like a tug of war. The world is pulling us one direction. Selfish ambition, our own motives, impure motives are pulling us one way. And God is saying, I just want you to come over to my side. Draw close to me. The world, it's just natural for us to want to gravitate towards the world. And God says, no, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. So where are you lacking godly wisdom? Where are you struggling with selfish ambition? Ask the Holy Spirit to show you, to reveal in your hearts of where the things that you're doing, even sometimes the good things, are being driven and motivated by selfish ambition. We're going to take a few minutes as we close here to worship together. And I want us to just take a moment before we sing and ask God to draw near to us. And I want us to ask ourselves, just in the quietness of this moment, God, where am I being fueled? Where am I being driven by selfish ambition? Where do I see those things play out in my life? Are there any areas, any areas of my life where I'm being driven by selfish ambition, by jealousy, not by godly wisdom? And ask God for more than just knowledge, but ask for his wisdom. Ask for more of God and less of you. We sing this song that we're going to sing. He loves us, that he's jealous for us, not jealous of us. 
He longs for us because we belong to Him. And He jealously wants the Spirit that was in our heart that He's given to us to be His, to draw near to Him, and He will draw near to us. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Let's take a moment and then I'm going to have us pray together. And in this moment, just I want you to ask God, God, where am I struggling with selfish ambition? Where's the conflict in my life? God, so many of us have so much conflict. Conflict in our marriages, conflict in our families, conflict even within this church, Lord? Where is it being driven and motivated by my own ambition and not by godly wisdom? Just ask God to to speak to your hearts here in this moment, and then I'll close this in prayer. stand together. God, would you reveal within our hearts where we're motivated by the wrong things? And Lord, may that list that we saw earlier that James gives us here of what it means to live with godly wisdom, may that be the motivation of our hearts. When we have conflict, Lord, when we have trials and temptations, when we're faced with the struggles in life, may we react out of that of being peace-loving and gentle, sincere and willing to yield to others with a purity of heart that's motivated by having people see you more clearly, not winning. God, show us where we need to be more like you. And God, may you give us more of you. We ask for that. We ask knowing, Lord, that you will provide it for us if we would just take a step closer to you. We thank you for your love, for your mercy, your forgiveness that covers our sins and that it has bought us so that we can be yours. May we draw close to you, humble ourselves before you, and Lord, we know that then you lift us up. In the name of Jesus, we pray, and the church together said, amen. Amen. Let's worship together.